Welcome back to the Noel Kassler Podcast, episode 64. I'm here on a Sunday morning. You're going to be hearing this on Monday, but we're going to do the regular and break down the week's events. First, I want to tell you about a special show I did yesterday. I did a taping with my buddy Stephen Van Patten. He's a DGA stage manager. He used to work with Dr. Oz, and that was the reason I had him on as a guest, but we ended up talking mainly about what happened in Buffalo, the horrific shooting that we're just past a week on. And it seems like it's fallen out of the headlines already, sadly, but Steven's a great dude. So head over to the YouTube channel, my YouTube channel, and you can check out that special episode and you can find him at laughingblackvampire.com. He's also a award-winning science fiction author. He's on IG at SVP Thinks. And he has a podcast that I've been a guest on called Beef, Wine, and Shenanigans about sort of like sci-fi and everything. And it's a great podcast. So check him out. Check out that episode. And you can come see me live at City Winery, New York City on June 7th. City Winery Loft, Philadelphia, June 8th. It's going to be lit. And also just a programming note, if you listen to that special episode, it kind of cut off at 40 minutes because I guess there's a time limit on Zoom, which I record this on now. So this is going to be a shorter episode too until I figure that out. But let's get into it. You know, the biggest story I think of the week was the primary on Tuesday. I think it's important to talk about this if for no other reason than the gubernatorial candidates on the right that are running on a purely, you know, big lie platform. Trump is king. QAnon is the law of the land. And these guys are winning. You know, I don't know that they're going to win over Democrats in Florida. Unfortunately, I think they will. And I know people don't want to hear that, but it's reality. The redistricting map that Ron DeSantis himself drew, which sort of cuts out African-American representation in Congress. His map was upheld by a judge on appeal just this past Friday. So he's got more victories than we have against him. It doesn't mean don't get out and vote. It doesn't mean give up the fight, but you got to be realistic about what you're facing, you know, and I don't think it's getting enough attention. How many secretaries of state across this country are full on big lie pro Trump candidates? who've already said on record, you know, had they do it, had they the opportunity, they wouldn't have certified the 2020 election. And that's a new beast in American politics. And that's Trump's, you know, game plan at this point. That's why he's spending literally his own political donations to unseat Brian Kemp as the governor of Georgia and backing David Perdue, who at one point, as you know, I've said was you know, a corporate CEO. He was a scumbag CEO, but he knew better than the big lie. But he had to leave the Senate because of his own insider trading and he got beat. And now he wants to take over the country, you know, at least the Georgia part of this country with big lie craziness. Right. And we got into it last week about how Elise Stefanik was running on the great replacement theory, literally the ideology that inspired a racist shooter a week ago to slaughter 10 innocent people and injure others and scar community for life. Let's face it, they'll recover because there's nothing more resilient, in my opinion, in this country than the African-American community, you know, and we don't talk enough about that, how they responded to centuries of oppression with beautiful things like art and music and science and intellectual thought and literature, you know, some of the greatest treasures this country has ever produced and given to the world come from that community. And it's time to, you know, be realistic about it and give it its due. But the other side of the coin, you know, the other political party that has a new mantra, like we need to take racism out of politics, right? 
That's what Rick Scott was saying on the Sunday morning network news TV shows this morning, right? Sunday morning talk shows. That's their new point. Like, hey, you know, don't call us out on racism. It reminds me of Dick Cheney when he said conservation is a personal ish, a personal, you know, attribute. Like, it's just up to you if you want to conserve stuff. I'm paraphrasing him, but it was essentially like, hey, that shouldn't be mandated. That's up to you if you want to save the very planet you live on. We don't need to call people out on that. And that's how they're running on racism now. Like, it's okay to be racist. And of course, it's not okay to be racist. It's, it's suicide for the soul, you know? And we need to be real about that. And we need to be real about the threat we face. It's what I talked about in the car rant this week. It's like, this stuff is happening all over the country. This is a national emergency. And, you know, it's good to have hope. No one's saying don't get out and vote, but you can't, you can't be toxically optimistic. It's like being at a carnival and thinking you're going to win, you know, a game of chance that's rigged for you to lose. You keep tossing those rings on those milk bottles and not understanding why they're not bidding. And you keep doing it. You know, nothing is fair on the midway of American life at this point. It's all been rigged in favor of conservative white establishment males, you know, and a patriarchy. That's plain to anybody who does even a tiny bit of research about the actual history of this country. And, and you know, that needs to come to the forefront, right? And it is in certain ways. I'm glad this Carlin doc is getting a lot of attention. I, attention, I haven't seen it yet. But, you know, I know, I'm very familiar with his work, Howard Zinn, People's History of the United States. There's a lot of people have been pointing this out for a lot of years, but you got to really kind of drive that message home, you know. And on a Carlin note, I saw Carlin in the late 80s at Peekskill at the Paramount Theater with my grandparents. And he did his seven words. They were updated and sort of modified, you know, compound curse words at that point in time. But I was sitting there with my grandparents and he did a particularly dirty curse word that had to do with the female body. And he looked right at me and my grandma as he said it. We were in the front row <laughs> and I held a resentment for about 30 years. I was like, I can't believe you just said that. But, uh, you know, it was a great memory. And those are my grandparents, you know. They brought me to see stuff like that. And on a personal note, my grandmother passed away last Monday and uh, I'm going to tomorrow up to Albany for the wake and the funeral. So that's what I'll be doing for a couple of days. I appreciate all your thoughts. Some of you guys checked in with me to ask how she was doing. So she didn't make it, but she lived a wonderful life. You know, my grandmother, when my grandfather was at Harvard, she was Richard Alpert's secretary. Richard Alpert later became known as Ram Das a leader in the sort of psychedelic, you know, spiritual movement. If, there's not a way to label somebody like that, but that's, that's a good way to start, you know? So she was down with that Timothy Leary, you know, Richard Alpert, Ram Dass scene. Obviously she wasn't doing psychedelics. She was always anti-drug and, and blame the Beatles for, for turning too many people <laughs> onto drugs, which was funny, but she's from that generation, you know? And she grew up in Springfield, Mass., you know, it came out of the Depression era and uh, saw all the things that go along with that. Went to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in New York City, where I went. And that's why I went there, because my grandmother was a legacy. So it was the only school. And at that time, the school was in Carnegie Hall. It was upstairs in, in Carnegie Hall. And one of her classmates was somebody named Grace Kelly, which is very interesting. And I think Jason Robards was there at the same time, too. And maybe even Don Rickles, it was around the, although after World War II, a lot of those guys went to, to school on the GI Bill and stuff. But uh, she gave up her dreams to be a Broadway performer because she got pregnant with my mom. And that's when she went back and my grandfather went to Harvard and, you know, she lived all over the world, ended up settling more or less in New York and in the 80s, as I've talked about before, she opened a homeless shelter in Peekskill, New York, which is still up and running to this day. And this was in the late 80s because she saw that homelessness had become a problem in Westchester, which they didn't want to admit because it was being sold as sort of a luxury product suburb. So a guy who was the county executive at the time was somebody named George Pataki, 
who comes from a prominent family in the Peekskill area, Pataki Farms. If anybody knows the history, he later went on to become governor, of course. But my grandmother stood up to George Pataki and fought him and opened a shelter in, in 1980. And she would fund this shelter by, by doing benefits at that same theater I just told you about, the Paramount. And she would bring in guys like Doc Watson to perform. So she opened my mind and my ears up to bluegrass music. She's the one who started bringing me to the Clearwater Festival in the 80s, which is Pete Seeger's organization, which I ended up, you know, working for, uh, working, you know, as a part of many, many times and uh, got to know Pete Seeger, as you guys know. And I told Pete about my grandma, you know, and, and I also, you know, if you ever watched Dead Man Walking, Sister Helen Prejean, that was uh, somebody that my grandmother knew. And in early retirement, they had moved to the Charlottesville, Virginia area and sort of became perplexed and uh, concerned about the sort of right wing leanings towards the death penalty down, down there. My grandmother is a very devout Catholic and Jesus obviously spoke out against the death penalty. So my grandma brought in, you know, Sister Helen Prejean to speak at her congregation in Charlottesville, which is a very radical move, if you know anything about that part of the country. And I'm not talking Charlottesville proper, I'm talking about the outskirts, Palmyra and these kind of like super red places. And then she moved back to the New York area, but probably her lasting legacy beyond a beautiful family and a life of service and sort of progressive, really, you know, real spirituality. Like she knew Father uh, Daniel Berrigan and Philip Berrigan. Those are the radical priests. If you ever listen to the Paul Simon song, you know, the anti-war priests in the 70s, anti-Vietnam War. So she was always, you know, she was always aligning herself with the people who weren't afraid to speak truth to power. She marched with Dr. King and brought my mom to the March on Washington in 63 or whenever, you know, the I have a dream speech. I, I'm, I'm not exactly, you know, right on the year, but you know which one I'm talking about. And she was in the crowd marching for civil rights back in the day. She opened a bunch of schools in Haiti and funded wells and all kinds of things, particularly around a village called Saltadere, which is sort of in the mountains in Haiti. And, uh, you know, she just had a lasting legacy and built a lot of friendships with Haitian people. And they would come and stay. These priests and stuff would come and stay and here in the United States with her and they loved her. So, you know, she put a lot of love and a lot of service into the world. And what more of a legacy could you ask for? So we're going to go up and honor her life and I don't know if I shared this yet, but I got to go say goodbye to her recently. And she's had dementia and struggled. And when she was sort of in that fog of dementia, there was a moment and I was telling her I loved her. And there became a moment of clarity. And her eyes looked at me, you know, and I could see she was taking me in. And she said, I've loved every day of my life. What more could you ask for? Right? What more could you want when you look back on this journey to know that every day you had was a blessing because it was an opportunity to help others and serve others. And that is not to say that every day of her life was easy because it certainly wasn't, you know, and there's a lot of heartbreak and tragedy in her family as there are in most of ours, if not all of ours. So no matter what happens to you, you get an opportunity to be of love and service. It reminds me of the Rumi quote you know, I think it was Rumi who said the nature of the rain is the same, but it grows thorns in the marsh and flowers in the garden. Right. And that's how you have to think about your life. You always have the opportunity to take whatever circumstances you've been handed and sort of forge them into the service of love. Right. That's true alchemy, taking pain and turning it into something that can help people. You know, it's the best of comedies does that, right? I don't, I try not to talk about superfluous things. I try to make some points amongst my comedy. I try to make it light and funny too, because you have to get people in a certain mood to receive information. And that's what comedy can, can do. We can laugh together and we can come together. And we need to do that. That's the challenge of our time. A lot of this, political turmoil and up, upheaval 
as much as it may not make sense, can't really be solved at this point by political solutions. It, there's almost like a spiritual transformation we need to, to make. And I don't mean that in terms of organized religion, because in many ways, that is not doing us a favor. You know, not that it's bad or wrong, but it's being co-opted to such a violent extreme degree by so-called Christians right now in this moment that it's turning off others who may, may need to hear that message, you know, the message of love and compassion, because they've taken that and they've used it for their own political gains. You know, everybody knows Jesus wouldn't be into anything that these people are doing right now, right? There couldn't be anything more unchristian than the modern GOP. So forget the mantles they claim and the, the flags that they wave in terms of that being a solution, right? It's not an ideolo ideological need. It's a spiritual sort of deeper understanding of how we're all connected. You know, we're all one. And the more we can help each other and find empathy and cultivate empathy, the more we can get out of this situation. And as you know, if you listen to this podcast, I believe that the arts are a great way to do that, you know, because the arts are a way to deliver truth and humanity in, in a way that it sneaks up on you, right? It's like Bob Marley sang, you know, when the music hits, you feel no pain, right? Bob Marley understood the groove and the power of the groove. And he had some genius musicians behind him in the early whalers who understood that mission, you know, and presented it. Like that's the most spiritual thing I've ever heard. If you listen to some of that great reggae, he would, he would have people in a trance, right? And then be hitting them with the real, like the real, real truth and political, you know, stuff in a way that hardly any, anybody else was. And of course, that's why the CIA had him killed. <laughs> but that's, that's another story for another day. But, um, and, uh, you know, so my point is, a lot of our great prophets deliver this stuff in an artistic way. Look at the impact John Lennon had on the world, you know, a legacy of love. And, you know, he was a complicated man who was far from like a peaceful, you know, happy kind of guy in many ways. You know, I know people who, who knew him very well and they're like, yeah, the way the public thinks of that guy is not how he was, but not that he was a bad dude. It was just, you know, he had some issues and he spoke about them. Honestly, if you think about how radical, you know, it was to admit some of the things he admitted about himself and his personal life going back to the Beatles. That's what made him a hero. He was willing to speak the truth, not just truth to power, but truth about his own life and his own foibles and his own complexities and mistakes, you know? And when you do that, you produce empathy and awareness. When you own these parts of your personality that aren't serving you and it, you admit you were wrong in some of your ways and your thinking and your deeds, then you have an opportunity to make a true amends. And when you make a real amends, whether it's philosophical or real, you know, then you have an opportunity to stand up straight once again and hold your head up and, and walk through the trials of life with a certain sense of, you know, you know, you have an equilibrium, you know what you're talking about. Right. It's like, you know, I, I referred last week to AA, but, you know, there's a thing in AA where it's like only an alcoholic can help another alcoholic because we've been there. You know, it's like if you're stuck down in a hole and another guy jumps in the hole with you and says, I know the way out of here, you're going to listen to that guy. You know, at first you're going to be like, what are you, an idiot? Why'd you jump down here too? Now we're both stuck, but you're not both stuck if you know the way out. And that's what I'm talking about in terms of a political solution, not meeting the moment in a way that a spiritual one needs to be met. Because we're really going to have to go in to the places we don't want to go to and not reach across the aisle so much in the spirit of compromise, but in the spirit of like letting people know that you're just like they are. You know, these days I've been trying to go to the areas where I know people are probably a little more MAGA oriented and, and remind them like, hey, remember, we knew each other back in the day. I know I'm just labeled in this binary way, you know, as a 
a liberal or a Democrat and you've shut your heart off to me now, but why? You know, we still have so much more in common than we do divided, right? And the powers that are manipulating and dividing these people are ruthless and they have deep pockets, you know, and that's the other scary thing for anybody who's truly paying attention and being honest about this moment is it's like they're coming across the field with a bunch of tanks, right? You know, and, and armed troops, right? Battle ready. And we're kind of rolling out yoga mats and being like, no, we're just all going to get together and say, ohm and, you know, <laughs> it'll be all right. We're just going to vote them out. There's going to be a blue wave. I have an emoji in my hashtag or whatever, you know, in my timeline, you know, and, and that's not, that's not being real about where we're at and what these forces are behind all this, because all this stuff is getting paid for by the Koch brothers and these other industries that are trying to cultivate defiance in their masses, right? Think about it in these terms. Nobody worships authority more than the conservative movement, really, right? It's always the cops and the military and the flag and the commander in chief that they're sort of worshiping in their rhetoric, right? But what happened at the moment that everybody really needed to come together and get vaccinated and wear masks? These people were told, do not obey. Do not go along with this. This is big government trying to screw you over. Fight for freedom. Don't do the right thing. So the people that were manipulated with the iconography of patriotism and subservience to authoritarianism and uniforms and flags were immediately told, everything we told you, forget that in this one particular instance, right? Now you don't need to obey. Now, what is that about? Who's funding that? Industries are funding that because when it comes down to the bigger picture, you know, because when you think about it, wearing a mask wasn't that big of a sacrifice. Conserving energy will be when we're finally honest about how we need to switch from fossil fuels, right? When you can't leave 50 lights on in your house all day and run the AC 24 7. When we have to tell people to do that, the companies that profit from that don't want those people to do that. So in many ways, the pandemic was sort of a test run. You know, how do we get a workaround regarding these mandates and these government assurances when, we, when we're going to need it, right? Because if we don't hold power, the Democrats are all talking about climate change and they're all talking about universal health care and all these things that we oppose. So they have cutouts, like when you're doing a contract, right? They have cutouts. Yeah, worship cops, worship authority, worship the military, except for in these cases, when we specifically tell you not to. It goes against their core philosophy, and the people that buy it don't even question it. They don't even think about it. They just do it. They march lockstep, you know, because they're being flooded with so much information so often. And, and many of them aren't even like the first generation recipients of that information. They're getting it hearsay through peer pressure in their communities, which is even scarier because that's, you know, that's, that makes it even easier for people to go along. Nobody wears a mask. If you see everybody else in the bar isn't wearing a mask, you don't want to look like the idiot wearing a mask, you know? So these are sort of deep psychological, you know, fissures and pressure points that are being expertly manipulated and stimulated in a massive chunk of this population. And now it's gone of the American population. And now it's gone mainstream, you know, and I only cover American politics, but obviously we, we, we see examples of this in England and, you know, Australia just had a victory last week. They, they thankfully, you know, didn't go to the dark side in their latest election and kudos to you guys. And I know people listen to this all over the world and I appreciate you. I sort of, it's enough to take in in this one American experiment, but, you know, apply any of what I'm saying all over the world, right? I talked about Bong Bong winning in the Philippines last week, you know, that's the son of Ferdinand and Imelda Marcos, you know, a guy who robbed 
his country probably more than anybody on this planet. And by the way, a guy who was represented by Paul Manafort and Roger Stone at Manafort, Stone and Black in the 70s. You know, they became the dictators lobbying firm in Washington, D.C. They helped, you know, authoritarians and despots all over the world. They helped Idi Amin. You know, they helped the worst people in the interest of money. Because ultimately, that's what the conservative Republican Party is about. It's about money, making money for the industries. That's why they don't want anybody paying taxes. You know, that's why Elon Musk went on the warpath and the meltdown a few weeks ago, right? And tried to buy Twitter because he didn't want people criticizing him. And he did it under the guise of I'm protecting free speech. And then two weeks later, he's like on Twitter, hey, if you're a lawyer, send me your resume because I'm going to get a team of lawyers together and sue anybody who talks about me, <laughs> right? So free speech went out the window pretty quick with that dude, right? It was about consolidating power. It's about not getting regulated because he's never handed over the environmental records for Boca Chica, which is where SpaceX is in South Florida near Padre Island. You know, it's the, the mouth of the Rio Grande. It's one of the most unique ecological areas on the planet, not just in the United States. And he's running roughshod over that to pay for his little ego boost rockets. And he doesn't want to play fair. Not to mention all the lawsuits he's facing, not just for like sexual discrimination, but for racial discrimination. You know, here's a child of apartheid whose family made a fortune off of emerald mines, who's now mistreating black employees in the hundreds. And there's a huge class action lawsuit against him now. So there's all kinds of things that dovetail perfectly with a conservative ideology and with an authoritarian takeover of this country directly benefiting him. And he's manipulating all these dude bros on Twitter, right? All these guys who were buying Dogecoin a year ago that thought, hey, you're just a slave to, you know, banking systems. Like we're going to be rich and we're going to get out of being, you know, a slave to fiat currency. That's the stupidest thing anybody's ever said, right? And they were saying it in the hundreds of thousands. These bros were everywhere, actively participating in a Ponzi scheme and giving their money away. And now they're all broke because it collapsed, right? You don't come out the victor when you align yourself with these kind of guys, you really have to think about what is their motivation? What are they pushing? And what are, why are they doing this? Right. But again, they're able to tap into that part of the American, mostly white male psyche that like wants to be a bully, that wants to be a dumbass, that feels afraid and scared, even though they really have no reason to feel that way. Right. They're being primed to feel that way. And a lot of times when you get things too easy, you come to expect it that way. There's almost not a, not that there isn't enough adversity, but like, you know, that kid who, who, who committed this heinous crime of this mass shooting, you know, his parents were professionals who worked for New York state. He had a swimming pool in his backyard. You know, his parents made 180 grand a year. You know, he wasn't hurting. Okay. He didn't want for anything in the material world. But as a young man, he was able to be manipulated by 4chan and 8chan and all these kind of, you know, alt-right news sources that pump this poison into their brains. And guys like Rupert Murdoch figured out a long time ago, there was a lot of money in it. That's why he started Fox News. He admits it himself. He wanted to tap into the NASCAR NFL market with a news product, right? Because CNN was doing so well. So he wanted sort of the anti-CNN. And now it's devolved into pure, purely racist talking points. Tucker Carlson was the biggest proponent of the great replacement theory. Peter Brimlow is a paid consultant for Fox News. He answers directly to Rupert Murdoch himself. Okay. Tucker's producers you know, or 28-year-old racist punks who spend all day researching hate on the internet and then giving the talking points to their little bow-tied boss to pump it into people's brains. 
and it gets cycled through and filters down into the language and the actions of these average Americans in these red states. And then all the crazy politicians get tapped to run for office. And it just becomes exponentially worse because each one tries to outdo the other. And now abortion is the issue that they're all sort of grandstanding on. Oklahoma, as you well know at this point, had a reprehensible bill this week that basically outlaws all forms of abortion, you know, including the abortion pill. It doesn't make exceptions for rape and incest, you know, it's heinous. And there's bills like that all over the country. And they won't stop with that. It'll be gay rights, you know, the attack on trans people's rights and children is on that same place, right? So you got to be real about this, you know, and, and I'm not saying all this to depress everybody. I just outlined how we can change it. The, the trick is to how do I do that in my individual life? You know, don't wait till November. Keep your eyes on November, but keep your eyes on the clock, you know, and say, how many minds can I change in my community? You know, how many ways can I speak out against this rising authoritarianism? Because at the heart of it, these men are cowards. You know, that was the lesson with Donald Trump. I, as you know, I was around that guy. I've never seen a more terrified person. You know, he, he's just, he's character defects run amok. He just cowers in fear about everything. Everything is so transparent. You know, he so wanted to be feared and respected and admired. And he was a joke his whole life. And he knew it. He has no self-esteem because you build self-esteem by doing esteemable acts. And he's never done an esteemable act. And none of these guys that follow him have, you know, these politicians like Jim Jordan, guys never written a piece of legislation. He's been in Congress for like 20 years or something. Not that long, but whatever. He's been there for a long time. He doesn't have any bills. Nothing has he offered. Authored. They don't contribute anything. They heckle out of fear and they find other fearful men and they get them to go along with it because they make it look fun. And that's up and down the ballot now in all these states. It's all these MAGA candidates. There's a guy in Tennessee who just announced he's running for Congress who was arrested in the Capitol, right? He was arrested in the Capitol for insurrection. Right. And when that was pointed out, a local reporter in Tennessee goes, no, he was arrested for trespassing as if, you know, the left is lying about the reasons as if he just hopped a fence somewhere to go fishing, you know, trespassing. It was an insurrection and it happened in plain sight and it was fomented by Donald Trump and his minions. You know, we learned on Friday that Ginny Thomas reached out directly to Arizona legislators and told them not to accept Biden as president, not to certify the ballots in Arizona. I mean, she's like the Kaiser Soze of that scene, right? She was pulling all these strings behind the scenes. And we all know it, and probably nothing will happen. You know, Clarence Thomas isn't going to recuse himself. The Democrats probably won't introduce articles of impeachment because they know they won't win. Right. Because we're not being honest about what we're facing. The Catholic Church, you know, the, the diocese in San Francisco, the bishop or whatever, said he's not going to give communion to Nancy Pelosi. It's Sunday today when I'm recording this. She probably didn't get communion in her church. One of the most Catholic members of Congress and the Speaker of the House over a political issue, abortion, because she's for women's right to choose and have autonomy over their own bodies, right? The Catholic Church is like, nah, no good. That's insane. And that's also in direct defiance of the Pope and what he wants regarding this issue. Not that he's pro-abortion, but, you know, He's more moderate than they've been in the past. And, you know, that's the Catholic Church. They're not paying taxes. That diocese isn't playing, paying taxes, but it's acting out in a political fashion, just like corporations aren't paying taxes, but they're manipulating people. They're manipulating lawmakers, and they're making it an unlevel playing field for others. And it's like I said about carnival games, that the game is rigged against you, right? That's what Carlin talks about. 
right? That's what that analogy I just made about the Carnival Midway. You know, it's like all of these rides you're getting on, you know, where you think you have free will and free speech and stuff, you don't. You know, you're just playing into the thing. You're getting taken for a ride and you're going to come out of it broke and weaker unless you apply awareness and see what's really going on here, you know, and that's our job. And that's where the arts can help. And that's where free speech helps. You know, that's why Elon Musk went after Twitter. That's why people who speak out against him, you know, get hammered all day long with hate, including myself. And I'm not complaining about it. It's exhausting. I turned my replies back on because so many people wanted to reply. Those people don't go through and see all the hate. They don't have to wake up every morning and read that. You know, I couldn't announce my grandma passed away on Twitter because people would have just been laughing at me and making fun of it. Doesn't mean I'm too sensitive, but it's toxic and they want it to be toxic. They don't want you to speak out because you'll get knocked down. They want you to fall in line. And you have to look at anybody who wants that for a people because they're not making the world a better place. Elon Musk was meeting with Bolsonaro on Friday and retweeted a promo of him, you know, looking like a Bond villain with a basically iron cross medal around his neck. I don't know if they gave him some medal, right? But he's down there retweeting, you know, his hang with one of the world's biggest dictators, right? And he's not down there. Because he's going to, you know, he, he ostensibly said, I, I'm down here to bring Wi-Fi to the Amazon. No, you're not. You're down there to cut a deal to get more lithium out of the rainforest because it has 8% of the world's supply. And you need lithium to make Tesla car batteries, right? So you always got to look beyond what these guys are saying. You know, and Tesla's done as a company. As soon as Ford and the rest of these guys come out, they're going to crush Tesla. You know, it, it lost... 400 billion plus in the last six weeks. It lost a ton of money. And Friday at one point, it dipped to 630 a share. It was $1,400 a share six weeks ago, you know, and it's going to tank when the market's open on Monday. And he knows it, you know, luckily he's a, he's a good case study because he's such a weird dude and so obviously out of control and out of his mind that he's not going to get away with this stuff. It was like what I always said with Trump. Trump gets away with it. But in many ways, Trump was his own worst enemy because he was just so bad and so undisciplined that he was going to make so much chaos around him that it would sort of be obvious to most people that this was a bad deal. If you can imagine Trump had been, if he had been disciplined, you know, if Trump had gone into the White House in 2017 and turned off his Twitter, you know, and just played along and took the advice of those around him. You know, if he brought in Mitch McConnell as a counsel, it'd be game over at this point. We'd already be in a dictatorship because he would have gotten reelected. You know, he would have continued to enrich his people and amass power. And you wouldn't recognize this place. Which is why I always warn against a DeSantis or somebody like that coming along. You know, a Trump with discipline, with self-discipline is a scary, scary proposition. And that's what you're being offered now right? You know, the sort of outliers, the Doug Mastriano, the guys that are obviously tools, they may be easier to run against and beat. But the ones that are more subtle about it or disciplined about it, and you know, Ron DeSantis is not subtle. He's about as subtle as reggaeton music. <laughs> you know what I mean? No offense. I'm just saying like, there's nothing subtle about Ron DeSantis and his aspirations, but he's disciplined, right? And he doesn't have really Charlie Crist and Nikki Fried. They don't, you know, you, does anybody really think they're going to beat him? You know, I don't. Right. And obviously everything Ron DeSantis does is eyeing the White House, is towards a White House run in two years. That's not a lot of time to become aware of what we're really facing. Right. So. You know, that's a lot of heavy stuff. I know I'm laying on you this morning and, uh, you know, it just goes along with what we've been talking about. It doesn't seem to be, it doesn't seem to be getting better. It's not going to get better on its own, but we can become more aware of it, you know? And, and, and the other thing I'd like to point about, point out is how much progress we lose when we go in this direction, right? I mean, 
it was 50 degrees on Wednesday night where I am just outside of New York City. It was so cold, you kind of had to turn on the heat, right? And it was 94 yesterday, it's 94 today, right? 35 degree difference, and it's going to be back to 49 on Tuesday. That's climate change, right? It was over 100 degrees in parts of Texas this week. It's not even summer yet, right? And we're not addressing these issues because we're being distracted by all the insanity. And that's not saying look away from the insanity. I'm saying there's a purpose to their madness because all this while they make money, you know, the gasoline companies and oil companies are making record profits while they're laying gas prices at the feet of Joe Biden, who has nothing to do with this. It's not how it works. It's not Biden's fault. But if you tell that to people and you say, you can go buy a cute little Let's Go Brandon t-shirt, you know, don't stop buying the giant pickup truck with a 50 gallon tank, but blame it on the Democrat, you know, and then go sweat your ass off in the local bar and talk about how it's the liberals fault, right? It's all a scam. It's like I said, you know, the game is fixed. The carnival ain't fair. It's coming to town to take your money. And you got to get hip to that fact. And too many people aren't hip to it. And the harder it gets economically for those people to put food on the table and survive, the easier it becomes for the people behind the scenes pulling the strings to get away with it. That's why the Koch brothers fund, you know, killing social security and killing healthcare in all these states. It's why the GOP wants to do in public education. They don't want people happy, smart, and educated. They want them broke, pissed off, and hurting because that makes more money for them. You know, that's what it's all about. It's a sad state of affairs, you know, but we'll, we'll be all right. We'll, we will get through this. We just have to have these conversations and we have to, you know, align our actions towards that. And we will, you know. And a good way to do it is to laugh. Come together and laugh. Come see me, City Winery. June 7th, New York City, The Loft. It's a beautiful new venue. It overlooks the Hudson. It's going to be a good time. The next night I'm going to be in Philadelphia, one of my favorite you know, cities in this country and probably the most underrated city easily on the East Coast. Philadelphia has the best restaurants you will find in this part of the country, period over New York these days, no question. And uh, one of the great musical legacies in this country too. I mean, just so many giants come out of Philadelphia from jazz, soul, you know, personal faves, Teddy Pendergrass, Charlie Parker, right? Went through Philadelphia, young John Coltrane saw him there. You know, Todd Rundgren, guy who shows up in my act. Todd is God, as they used to say in Woodstock, right? So Philadelphia, a good place to be. And then there's Cape Cod, August 3rd, where I'm going to be. Little musical interlude, couldn't help it. I'm going to be at the music room in Cape Cod, August 3rd. This guitar, by the way, I opened the show with, this is a custom resophonic guitar. I got it in Texas, once again, on a Jackson Brown tour. It was made by a guitar tech, ex-guitar tech, who started building guitars, and he would bring a bunch of them backstage at the concerts. It's called a Republic. They're built overseas, and then he assembles them uh, in Texas and keep the price low, you know? So on my first Jackson Brown band tour, the summer of 2010, I was in charge of the band, which included the great David Lindley, who's like a mentor of mine and one of the smartest guys I know and incredible musician. He's the guy who taught me the twang stuff. Have you been hearing the, the double chorus bazookies and all that? So they brought all these instruments in for the guitar techs to buy, you know, for the crew to buy. And they set them up in a room backstage 
and uh, everybody went in there and bought guitars. And I was the new guy on the tour. I was like the new road manager. So there's a lot of hazing sort of and, and dues paying <laughs> on the road. Right. So I got last looks because they knew I was buying stuff all over the everywhere we went. I was buying guitars. I was out there to to get instruments because it was a once in a lifetime opportunity in many ways to to collect in that way where it was personalized. And I was picking out instruments with some of my heroes. Right. So they kept me out of the room. And as I walk in the room, David Lindley is the last guy in there, right? And this guitar is, is laying down on a table and Dave's plucking at it. And Mark Goldenberg, the other guitar player in the band, an incredible guitar player, leans into my ear, right? And he goes, if David puts that guitar down, you need to buy it, no. And Dave kind of looked at it strummed it a few more times and walked out of the room and I snatched it up came out with it David the same guy I got the bazooki that he had played so I told David that I got it and he goes hey man put that in open G and it's a formidable instrument and it served me well it was one of my travel guitars because it's indestructible and it fits in a baby Taylor case if you know what that is a little soft case so guitar has been all over the world and uh you know, I use it like I use music. I pick it up to play at the end of the night to just get what's inside of me out. You know, we all need our own pressure release valves, especially these days, because a lot of this fight is maintaining your own serenity and your own personal, you know, equilibrium, for lack of a better term. So if you have a yoga practice or something like that, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Mine has kind of fallen off because I can't go to classes anymore because of the, the COVID and stuff. So, you know, I do, I do the stuff I have to do around here. I sit out in nature. The bullfrogs are all chirping. I call it the bullfrog chorus. So I sit out and listen to the bullfrogs. You know, I checked out the eclipse last Sunday and I play music at night. You know, something to let these things that we feel that almost go beyond words but still need to be expressed music says what words can't right so use music or art you know especially you know art that is you don't even know why you're making it that it comes from the subconscious you know speaking to david lindley he's a, a wonderful musician he knows everything about like music from an intellectual standpoint and somebody asked him once about playing solos and he's like yeah you can do it from your brain you know you can know the notes you're going to play and think about it beforehand and play the right notes in the solo and it'll work. Or you can trust your subconscious and go that route. And that way will lead to brilliance every time, you know, or maybe failure, but you have greater heights if you sort of get out of your own way and tap into a higher power, right? The power of now, to put it in other terms, like Eckhart Tolle talks about something beyond us that's why the grateful dead was so popular you know it was improvisation at its heart yeah they had these songs but they never played them the same way twice and when you have that courage to take risks and really react to the moment and listen to others in real time it becomes something stronger than any one individual can bring to the occasion you know, sometimes at these dead shows, there would be like a circuit going between the audience and the band, and it would just take on a life of its own. You know, I saw a lot of shows. I, had, I saw it happen on a mag magic level a few times. Hampton 89 is the best example. The, the two famous shows they played as the Warlocks. I was there. They pulled out Dark Star for the first time. And uh, it was magic. I've seen it in performers. I saw it with the Dalai Lama. I did a show with the Dalai Lama. I know it sounds crazy, right? I might have talked about this with David Crosby. So Crosby was, he knows the Dalai Lama, of course, right? So uh, Crosby was uh, booked on this show to do with the Dalai Lama. We did at the Carrier Dome up in Syracuse, New York. I want to say around 2011, maybe. And uh, it was uh, October, I think. And we flew up there. It was October because I was doing a Woody Guthrie benefit at the Kennedy Center the following night. But we flew up there a couple of days earlier and the Dalai Lama did this 
the speech and then a bunch of sorry about that a bunch of people uh spoke and performed and stuff and at one point i'm sitting in the audience sort of like stage right with jan crosby with with david's wife and the dalai lama's given this great speech to all these kids there are people you know it's carrier dome it's like ninety thousand people it's massive so he's given this speech and at one point it almost goes beyond words and you just feel this energy right and you can see him become aware of it and he lets out a little chuckle you didn't even know why but he lets out a little chuckle and you saw that chuckle like a wave ripple through the audience you saw everybody else sort of feel it and get hip to it and start laughing themselves and it went out and came all the way back to the stage it was like a wave crashing on the beach and it was just pure energy. It was just consciousness and understanding and love that we were all sharing in that moment. And he was clearly aware of it. And I don't think the people in the audience were aware of what they had caught up, been caught up in. And I don't think they needed to be. They were purely in the moment. And I remember looking at Jan and saying, did, did you see that? I mean, he just kind of transferred that out and then watch them give it back to him, right? So that's an example of what can be achieved in this kind of communication I'm talking about. You know, what arts and humanities and empathy can give us when we sort of come together in a collective conscious way with an intention on making this place better, right? And we're gonna do it because there's more Dalai Lamas to come, right? There's more good people to come, right? And there's a lot of good people here right now. And if we can harness that energy, if we can always point towards our better angels and our better selves, we can get through anything because the right leaders will show up at the right time. You know, the old saying, like, when you're ready, the master will appear. I don't know, I'm paraphrasing, and master's probably <laughs> the best choice of words given where we're at, but you know what I'm saying the Buddha will appear, you know, in the meantime, you chop wood and carry water, right? You keep your feet on the ground and keep your head in the stars, you know, and keep your heart open and you'll get through anything and we'll do it together. Okay. So thanks for listening. I'm going to hop off now. I'm going to be up in Albany, as I said this week, saying goodbye to my grandmother. I appreciate all you guys. I'm getting ready to laugh. I got a lot of love. I got a lot of laughter. I want to share it with you guys. So once again, come on out. Okay. City Winery. Tell a friend. June 7th. Philadelphia. City Winery. June 8th. Tell a friend. Cape Cod Music Room. August 3rd. Until then, you can find me at noelcastler.com. You can find me on Twitter. It's going to be another hot and crazy week, but we're going to get through it together. So thank you for listening. Episode 64 Noel Castler podcast is done. Peace.